All right. The confusing and beautiful intersection of happiness endings and beginnings, the pursuit of happiness part last. <laughs> All right. Before we get into that, I personally take courage from the stories of the indigenous peoples of this land. And in this instance in particular, as we kind of move into what we're going to explore together, I take courage from ideas like you tried to do us in, but we're still here. <laughs> and we're making something beautiful as we rise. Uh, things, you know, that's a, that's a short sentence of an idea that I hear often from friends and mentors in my life that are indigenous folks. And that I hear in the cultural zeitgeist about the retelling of a story that uh, the colonizers and colonization tried to exterminate, tried to eradicate. And that idea that something beautiful could come out of something not beautiful is an important idea in what we're exploring today. And that's one of the things that inspired me to talk about it, so I'm grateful for that. I think we could just talk about the lessons to be learned from that reality and have our time be well spent, but... We're going to explore something related and not the same. This, this talking bit feels a little bit like Confusion Corner to me, like the actual Confusion Corner. Uh, there are roads coming into it from every direction, not necessarily in some sort of tidy, you know, on a grid kind of way. And you can get almost anywhere from there, depending on what your preferences and choices are. And when I first moved to Winnipeg, oh my word, I had to, I had to take a friend. I wasn't living in working in Winnipeg. I was working at a camp outside of Winnipeg when I moved here. And I had to take one of the staff who was from Toronto back to the airport for like this ridiculously red-eye kind of ish flight. And I got to the airport fine. Can I just mention this was pre-Google Maps? I got to the airport just fine. And then coming back <laughs> at like three in the morning or whatever time it was, no traffic, I got, I got so lost in Confusion Corner and then that tangle of one-ways that is downtown. I mean, how, what was I even doing there? But anyway, I, I got, it took me half an hour to get, get it unraveled and get home. And uh, by the time I got home, I was like, deleted expletive of this city, you know. Like, I just, I just was not a happy camper. Um, Confusion Corner sort of felt like it represented that to me when I first moved here, that it absolutely deserved its name. And honestly, like, if I had to go through it, I kind of dreaded it. Like, I, I did not like it. I, I realized when I was thinking about it in writing this that feeling confused, unless I choose to do it as entertainment, which is not necessarily a good idea anyway, but, but unless I choose to feel confused, that's a feeling that also makes me tend to feel annoyed, and maybe even stronger emotions than that that are you know, generally called negative emotions. And so those aren't necessarily happy memories. But I am really pleased to say that over the years, I have come to appreciate the wealth of possibilities that are offered by that labyrinthian corner. <laughs> I don't dread it anymore, and I mostly navigate it with good results. I have also learned how to creatively salvage it if I make a mistake. You're probably more honest to use plural language there. I've learned several ways to salvage it, depending which way I mess it up. There's that great little hidden street, you know, that goes on to South Osborne that's kind of behind, anyway. My hope is that this exploration will be kind of like that. Maybe it's a bit of a mess of intersections that is ultimately, I hope, a possible starting point for creatively getting where you want or need to go.
So it doesn't have one exit point. Way back in 2008, the Winnipeg Art Gallery hosted a traveling exhibit of the first completely handwritten and illuminated Bible to be commissioned by a Benedictine abbey since the invention of the printing press. Bit of a landmark event in the world of illuminated Bible publishing, which is a niche, uh, to be sure. It was, uh, it was an ambitious project, and it had a very striking end product. If you're curious uh, or you want to see some pictures, you can easily find more information and uh, pictures by searching under the St. John's Bible uh, project. And it really is quite remarkable. I went to see the exhibit, partly because having had the privilege of seeing some other sort of famous illuminated Bibles that are now tucked away in museums and art galleries and so on, I wanted to see how this kind of contemporary one stacked up, basically. You know, I was, I was just interested to kind of put it beside the others and go, well, how'd we do? And I also went because I was curious to see how I felt about the whole enterprise, like this incredible investment of time and creative energy and money on the artful reproduction of a complicated, often confusing, and not infrequently contentious collection of texts. And so I kind of wanted to just be in the presence of this thing and see what that felt like. And at the time, I remember being impressed by the incredible creativity and the quality of the work itself. It, it truly is a, a beautiful book. And I was also impressed by the cultural breadth of the chosen illustrative themes, um, yeah, I won't get into that. You can look it up for yourself. But it, it, there was some, felt like some good work had been done there, some corrective work from my perspective. And I also thought that the artist had arrived at a lovely solution to avoid depicting God in any particular way, which was simply to use gold as the illustrative material for the presence of the divine uh, in the work. As you might imagine, there was you know gold everywhere. I also remember feeling a bit bugged at the extravagance of the whole thing. I know this argument doesn't hold up well for all sorts of reasons, but that whole you could have fed a lot of hungry kids for what this book cost thing definitely came to mind. Like I said a bit earlier, a bit of a messy intersection. But that also got me thinking about what the impulse might be behind that kind of a project. And I, I don't just mean the religious impulse behind making a remarkable and beautiful illuminated religious book. I felt like that's a fairly obvious connection in some ways. I mean the impulse behind making anything beautiful, even extravagantly beautiful, when the resources might be otherwise assigned or there might be other demands on those same resources. And when I reflected on it a bit, I thought, you know, surely the Benedictine folks behind all of this couldn't have been deliberately ignoring their own traditions, which stand on vows of stability, fidelity to a monastic way of life, which comes with built-in choices of poverty and chastity, as well as seeking to be obedient to their understanding of a life pleasing to God, aided in all of this by their fellow monks. Those are the hallmarks of the Benedictine order. And how does that all fit with commissioning something like this Bible, and also with that wider question about making beautiful things while also acknowledging the challenges of life. And since we're you know, wrapping up this extended series on the pursuit of happiness, what does this have to do with that? I don't know, does this feel like Confusion Corner yet? <laughs> All right, so let's, let's pick a path through the intersection and let's follow it for a ways and see where it takes us. And to do that, I want to consider another very famous illuminated Bible, 
which is now known as the Book of Kells because of where it was found. And this truly is, this might seem like a weird thing to nerd out about at the end of a series about happiness at the table, but just stay with me. That The Book of Kells is truly one of the most remarkable pieces of illuminated text that we, and by we I mean sort of European, Western culture, possess. And again, I won't get into the details. They're easy to look up if you're interested. The, the book lives at uh, is it Trinity in Dublin in their library. And uh, you can go see one page of illuminated side and one page of text on any given day if you get your tickets and stand in line for a lot of hours. The physical book itself has a long and a very intriguing history, which, again, I won't spend a lot of time on. Here's the bit that I think is most applicable when it comes to this wider question of why we might make something beautiful when there are other ways we could spend our time and resources and what that has to do with the pursuit of happiness. As far as we can tell, the Book of Kells was created between the 6th and 9th centuries in Ireland predominantly, but it, it moved around, so in the UK in general. And that the story of its creation is, uh, is all bound up not an intentional pun, but not bad if it was, um, with Christian-motivated colonialism. Like, it's all tangled up with that. And, and again, the short version, prior to Christianity, Ireland was primarily an oral culture. Uh, but when St. Patrick showed up as a Christian missionary, he also brought the Roman alphabet with him, and Irish scribes started to write things down. And they wrote down everything. Like, they didn't just write down Christian things. They wrote down their own myths and legends. They copied manuscripts of classical Western texts and Christian texts, other texts, and they also made these remarkable illustrated books that contained predominantly the Christian Gospels and Psalms and, in a couple of occasions, entire biblical collections, entire Bibles. And some of them, like the Book of Kells, are so intricate and beautiful and layered with symbolism that they, they pretty much defy description. They respond to long, deep study uh, by pointing to things that one might not expect, which, which is interesting in itself. Again, I'm not going to go down that path. But what makes this particular book so singular in the context of our exploration today is two things. One, that it was made at all, and the other is that it survived. It was created during an era of Irish history that was we could fairly call the Viking era as well. And so in that period of history, these sort of wild northerners would regularly raid and, and destroy Irish coastal towns and the monasteries that were in these towns. And the Christian community in Ireland, which was rapidly expanding in this part of the world at that time, never really kind of, they never really kind of went down the, uh, you know, we're just going to arm ourselves and fight back route. And so as a result, <laughs> uh, they, they got leveled regularly, um, often annually. And as you can imagine, a book containing gold might be a desirable object for marauders. And at one point, the Book of Kells is stolen and its elaborate gold-embossed cover is torn off and it's tossed away, uh, only to be recovered later, we're told, um, under a piece of sod in the dirt. And in the surviving copy, we can, we can see that the pages, which are vellum, which are calfskin leather, uh, they're still they're singed by fire, they're stained by the earth. Like It was in monasteries that got burned down more than once. Like it's, a, it's kind of astonishing that we have the thing itself. So, to the point. Imagine this. These monks 
dedicating their lives to making these incredibly beautiful copies of sacred texts are doing all of this while knowing that the Vikings are inevitably coming to burn the place to the ground again. That's their context. And they keep on doing it. They get up every morning and they go to their work tables and they keep on making something beautiful and in their context, something meaningful, even though they know that their work could go up in smoke at any moment. One of our kids, adult kids, recently said that for their generation, their retirement plan is the apocalypse. Ouch. But also, I hear them. When your world is awash in information about the fragility of the future, it's hard not to feel like you're living on the edge of the end all the time. And I, I believe that there are things about this time in this place, in this culture, uh, broadly speaking, that amplify that situation, not the least of which is you know, this current experience of the long-lasting impacts of a global pandemic. Having said that, feeling like the world could end any day is not a new human experience. See above, re, you know, monks and Vikings and all of that. So, about that question regarding what motivates us as humans to do these things and how it relates to happiness. Sometimes we find big truths, important ideas, written in both the literal and the metaphorical margins. And in one of the manuscripts that was found at the same monastery where the Book of Kells was found, not, the, not in the Book of Kells manuscript, but a different one, there's a poem that's actually written in the margin uh, that has survived. And some of you are going to categorically love this. Again, not a deliberate pun, because it's a cat story. Um, one of the monks who worked on making these books had a cat named Pangur. Take that one home, hey? You gotta, if you get a cat, you, can just, you want to have the name nobody else has? Right there, Pangur who was apparently a good mouser. Now, think about it. This is a, this is a, this is a library full of vellum. <laughs> and you're inlaying it with elaborate things and investing your life's work in this. And then some mouse comes along and is like, nest lining, you know. So, pretty important. And, um, and, and they're watching their cat do their job. And apparently, they were good at it. And, and as they're watching, they write this poem in the margins of the manuscript they're working on. Practice every day has made Pangur perfect in his trade. I get wisdom day and night, turning darkness into light. As poetry goes, it's not high art. It, it's a bit iambic pentameter in translation and feels like it would be, you know, uh, right at home in a stereotypical greeting card. But we could think of it like this. This person, this copyist, is making something lovely. They are making a work of passionate creativity and devotion, knowing all the while that the world as they know it could come to an end at any time. They regard their work as turning darkness into light. And they understand that the regular practice of turning darkness into light is what releases its wisdom into the lived experience of the one doing the making. It's the practice that releases the wisdom into the lived experience. That's where they encounter what it feels like 
to turn darkness into light. It is, we could say, a direct and active response to the presence of what is not good in the world, to the possibilities of things like violence or chaos, ugliness. It's, a, it's an embodied way to do something like that. Uh, and it does, I'm not being literal at this point. I hope that's clear. But something akin to that is an embodied way of pushing back against those things without resorting to those same things. So it's a way of resisting violence without resorting to violence. It's a way of bringing order without denying the reality of chaos. It's a way of making beauty while sitting in the ugliness of burned-out ruins. We talked a fair bit in this space in the last couple of years uh, about this idea of reality. And in so many ways, when we insist on the realistic and thoughtful pursuit of happiness, of joy, we are, in some ways, practicing the belief that the universe is held together by a reality that is bigger, more profound, and more powerful than whatever could assail that reality. You can call it love, you can call it logic, you can call it God, you can call it reality, you can call it whatever you call it, but call it. (laughs) Summon it. Seek it out. Make facsimiles of it to remind us that it's there. Make derivatives of it to keep us every day practicing whatever it is that turns darkness into light for us and for those that are around us. And sometimes, history suggests, the practice that does that for us and those around us might at any remove look ridiculous, might look absurd. I mean really. An expensive illuminated Bible in the 20th century Endless copyists working at their desks in freezing monastery ruins doing the same thing, knowing that tomorrow might be the day the Vikings decide to burn it all to the ground again. It's, it's crazy. And yet, says the margin writer, this is where I experience wisdom released into life. This is where I find out what it feels like to turn darkness into light. I would suggest that one of those practices is the determined pursuit of happiness. Not of the naive, trivial, maybe even toxic insistence that happiness is all there is. That's just demonstrably neither wise nor true. That is not the case. But to keep returning to such a project, to get up in the morning and go to our metaphorical copy desk and keep embossing the next leaf, coloring the next intertwined vine, or drawing the next fantastical creature in the margins, to do what amounts to our own mouse-catching, if you will, can keep us attentive to the pursuit and presence of what is beyond us, of the mysterious goodness that, I would say, is the beating heart of all that lives. It can keep us pursuing the light of something like happiness without denying that darkness is real, but also without giving up and just quitting on the whole enterprise. It can keep us showing up for what is beautiful and for what is healing and for what is full of renewed life. It can give us the strength that we need to continue to seek a way forward at the complicated intersections of life that also include things like endings and detours and complexity. It can help us, as Joy Clarkson puts it, to keep 
living lives that are the opposite of death. In other words, it can keep us going in a realistic pursuit of happiness. And that, it seems to me, is a better path through Confusion Corner than the alternatives. Thus ends Tim's musings about the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) All right. Peace, everybody.